0: Uh, I could have mentioned this earlier, but I thought, well, maybe I'll save myself answering this question uh, 10 or 12 times. Uh, When we read Psalm 46, there was a word in there twice that some of you didn't know. Now, do we say this or what? And if we say this, what does it mean? The word "selah," right? When we got to that, it's like, ooh, wait, what? Well, um... What that is, we don't know exactly what that is. (laughs) But let me tell you what uh, many speculate uh, that was. Uh, As you know, the Psalms were songs, and they were set to music. And many believe that uh, that was a place where there was a pause in the music, so here's how I use this when I'm, I'm reading just by myself. You can't do it in a group, obviously, quite as easily. But when I see that, I just I pause and I look back at what I just read and, and, and think about it for just a moment, and then I, I move ahead. So you may want to use it that way, and I'm sure uh, when we get to heaven and we are singing these songs with the angels, we'll know what exactly what Selah meant, but I don't. I think that might be a good use for that, in the meantime. Well, we uh, we have been in Romans nine, and as I mentioned last week, one of the great preachers and commentators of the twentieth century, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, stated that that. That section that we are now going to be in our third week on, that section is, in, in his view, the most difficult in all of Scripture. Now you, you can imagine uh, as a pastor, that just all the more drives you to your knees uh, when you start entering a passage like that and you see one of the commentators uh, make a statement like that. But because it is all one passage, let me uh, remind you that last week we dealt with the issues uh, surrounding Romans 9, especially uh, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills, Uh, particularly some of the issues if God hardens, then I guess it's not my fault, but his. And therefore would be unjust for anyone to be punished. Now we talked about that last week, and if you weren't here, uh, uh, it, it is online on our website, or you can, if you, if you don't go online, uh, we can get you a CD of it if you want to listen to it. Uh, but one of, one of the ways we talked about that is that to make that presumption uh, reflects a misunderstanding of mercy and hardening. And here's why those two things are not parallel. Mercy. By its very nature is undeserved. Hardening in the scripture is always deserved. Romans 1, when we went through it, talks about how God gave them over. In other words, he let them go the way they desired to go. So we talked about it, it's not as though there are those that are uh, approaching God, and he says, no, you're out. You know, there aren't people that that want God. In fact, everybody's going the other direction. And, And it is God himself who, through his mercy, keeps some from going That direction, that's his mercy. If anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. If anybody is saved, the credit is God's. So here's the bottom line from last week that we talked about some receive mercy, some receive justice, exactly what they deserve, but nobody. Receives injustice. Some receive mercy, some receive justice, but nobody receives injustice. Now, as we move into the end of chapter nine and enter chapter uh, ten, Martin Lord Jones expa- explains that uh, in, in chapter nine, Paul explains why anyone is saved, <coughs> why anyone is saved. It is simply the sovereign electing grace of God. And then chapter 10, Paul explains why anyone is lost. And it is the rejection of the gospel. So he's moving in to, uh, you know, he's talked about God's absolute sovereignty. And now in chapter 10, he's going to talk about man's responsibility so let's read the text. We'll begin with uh, verse 30 of chapter 9. What shall we say then? Remember, Paul always has these questions that he anticipates that uh, some are, are asking or objecting. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Let's bow together. Lord, we may be intimidated by various passages, but... But you are not. These are your words, kind words, from a father to his children, instructive words, for us to know you better, words of life. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who is our, our comforter, would be our teacher in this. And we pray for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, throughout the book of uh, Romans, Paul has. Presented a question, and these are not just straw men, these are not just questions that he would put up there because he has the answer to it. These are difficult questions. I would suggest they're either questions that he has actually heard, or he might have thought them himself as he began to know uh, Christ. But at the very least, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and so these questions are ones that we should should deal with and not shy away from. So he moves on and and says, uh, in terms of stating the problem, the next problem, what do we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So here's the issue. The the Roman church that Paul is writing to has become made up of a majority of Gentile converts Here's what what they were seeing. That uh, Gentiles were coming to Christ and fewer, much fewer of the Jewish race were coming to Christ. And so he knew that there would be a, a concern here because after all, Look at the advantages the Jews had. We we dealt with that previously. Look at the promises they had. In fact, they they actually knew, they understood that they needed a righteousness before God if they were going to have a relationship with God. They got that part and they pursued it. Unfortunately, they pursued it in the wrong way. Their pursuit was trying to get to God through their own works and obedience. So here are the Gentiles who have never sought God, any kind of God, many of them. They weren't even seeking seeking, uh, pagan gods. And yet, It's been given to them. John Stott says the Jews who pursued righteousness never reached it, and the Gentiles who never pursued it laid hold of it. So why is that a problem for the Jews? Well, let me illustrate. There is an area in St. Louis, you could repeat this in in any city, but there's an area in St. Louis uh, uh, and I heard about this particular thing that took place there. It is the worst of the worst areas, economically, in terms of crime, in terms of uh, poor education. It, it was, it, it's an area where uh, you know, the businesses are gone, It's an area where people don't want to go to but want to get away from. And there is a man who deliberately moved into that area and he took his family there. He, by trade, is a carpenter and so he took his business there. And he had determined that he wanted to hire an apprentice to learn that trade. Because the man was a Christian, he wanted, however, to illustrate, even with the apprentice, he wanted to illustrate how God's grace works. So he had a number of applicants from the area, and he was screening them, In order to screen them, he would have tools on a table and see if they knew a hammer from a screwdriver or a saw and things like that, and then would see if they could drive a nail and, uh, you know, what kinds of things they knew. And then he made his decision of who he would hire as the apprentice. Because he wanted to illustrate God's grace... He hired the least qualified one. The one who had no skills, who didn't know anything about the tools. There was no human reason why this one would have been hired. Needless to say, those who knew more, who were more qualified, didn't handle it well. if you can understand why they didn't handle it well, why they thought, well, I should have been that apprentice instead of him, he's completely unqualified. If you can understand and relate to them, then you can understand why the Jews had a problem with the Gentiles coming in. They felt they were more qualified And so here's the thing we need to understand about grace and that is grace can really be upsetting when we really begin to understand it because it goes so far against what we think of as common sense and what our human reasoning leads us toward. That's why it's so hard for many of us to grasp it. So why didn't the Jews obtain it? Paul clarifies. Verse 32. The Jews did not succeed. Verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So the Jews, think Pharisees. That's probably the easiest way to, to think of of them at this point. They weren't all Pharisees. But uh, they were establishing their vertical relationship with God by what they were doing horizontally. You get it? You know what I'm saying? So what they were saying is the things that, that we are doing seem good to me, They seem good to others, so they must be good for God. That must help with our vertical relationship with him. Look at what I've achieved, what I do. So here's the issue. Some people, let me use a couple of theological words here. Some people, I'll explain them, uh, struggle to achieve their justification based upon their level of sanctification. Okay, let's move on now, all right. Here's what I mean by that. We've talked about both of those terms. But let me say it again. They, some people struggle to achieve their justification based upon their level of sanctification. Sanctification is, is the part where we are seeking to grow, to be more like Jesus, to be more obedient. But it takes place, biblically speaking, Romans has been clear on this, only after we are already his child, and that's what we would call justification. But there were those, and the Jews were among them, but they are among us as well. You may be one of them, that are seeking to establish that you're justified, I'm a child of God because here's what I do. And Paul would say, absolutely not. Never. May it never be. But that's what the Jews were struggling with. So here's what we need to know. You cannot earn your position before God because Jesus already did. You cannot improve your standing before God because you, if you are in Christ, if you're trusting in him alone for eternal life, you cannot improve your standing before God because you are already righteous in Christ. With the righteousness of Christ, do you really think you can improve on His righteousness? And of course, we would say, "No, I, I don't think that. I just act like I think that." <laughs> so Paul goes on and he quotes from Isaiah. He's using an illustration that they uh, would understand about the stumbling stone. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. This is verse thirty-two and thirty-three. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So here's the picture. You're going down a road. There is a troubling rock in the middle of the road. It's not one you can just walk around. So take that out of the illustration. You've got a choice. You can stop and stand on it, or you can try to run through it. What happens when you run through it? You stumble. Actually, you're crushed. So, Jesus is either the cornerstone the foundation that we stand on, or he's a stumbling stone. But understand this. He's never just a stepping stone to help you to get to God. We either get to God through Jesus or we don't get to God So there are some who have claimed, you know what? Christianity is, it's just a crutch for the weak, for weak people. You've heard that probably. Christianity is just a a crutch for weak people. Well, I don't agree. It's not a crutch for weak people. It is life support for the dead. And I don't mind saying that. Because in Christ is life. Outside of him is death, which is eternal. So Paul goes on in chapter 10 to talk about man's responsibility before a sovereign God. He's he's going to address that which is further difficult to grasp. He's already talked about how God is completely sovereign. And now he's going to say, but we are completely responsible How do those come together? Well, we'll see how he addresses it. God is sovereign over salvation from beginning to end. It's not about man's ability or desire. He has made that clear. It is about the purpose of God's will before the foundation of the world, before we had done anything. He chose us. And yet, according to Romans 10, man is completely responsible. So Paul, first of all here, reaffirms his heart's desire. Verse, um, in chapter 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about this group that he, he's, uh, he's just mentioned that have, have stumbled my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. Now, remember earlier in chapter 9, verse 3, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And we talked about how, you know, Paul's passion was for their salvation. So, here is Paul who com- He grasped God's sovereignty in uh, salvation, I, I think I'm safe to say, better than any of us could. And yet, he's saying, I'm praying for their salvation. So don't ever let a belief that God is sovereign Keep you from praying for the salvation of people. That is the instrument we'll see, especially next week. But that is the instrument that he uses. So he doesn't at any point say, Well, I don't know, I'm going to, if they're the elect, I want them to get saved. But if they're not the elect, I'm, that's the way it is. He's not in some kind of fatalistic mode. But instead, he says, I'm praying because that's my heart's desire. I'm praying that they may be saved. So don't ever quit. And Paul wasn't worried. He didn't know who the elect were any more than we do. But that didn't stop him, and it mustn't ever stop us. It should, in fact, give us incentive to see the apostle here showing that kind of love and and desire for people to be saved. And he doesn't condemn the legalist. He doesn't despise the Pharisee. He prays for them. And then he talks about their problem, verse 2. For I'll bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. See, to, to say that, look, you Pharisees, you don't have... Knowledge, that, that's like the, the worst insult you could ever give to them. He's not saying they're not smart or they don't have a vast amount of knowledge in general. He's saying they don't know Christ. That's their problem. Now, contrast him talking about this zeal with that which is politically correct today. What's politically correct to say is, it doesn't matter what you believe, just believe something. Be a a spiritual person. Here's the problem with that. And you can fill in your own illustrations. You can believe something And be completely sincere about it. But if that belief is not truth, if that belief is wrong, your zeal to believe that gains you nothing. In fact, it hurts you. It takes you the wrong way. So it's not about zeal, though those who have the truth in Christ should be zealous, but it must be uh, zeal in our knowledge of Christ. And then he talks about how the Jews tried to establish their own righteousness. For being, verse 3, ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Let me read to you a a portion of a letter. This is written by a Jewish rabbi to a young man who had turned to Christ. And I I think this kind of gives a classic expression of, uh, of this kind of Jewish thought. And this is just one... Rabbi, but I think it's fair. Here's what he said to this young man who had come to Christ. The basic question about religion is how to elevate man and bring him into closer relationship with God. So that's the rabbi's view of the purpose of religion. It's to elevate man, not to change him, but to elevate him. We believe that God revealed To us, the Torah, that would be the law of Moses, how he wants us to live so that we can be in harmony with his divine purpose. Our role and religious purpose is to obey God's laws, to love him and obey him. We exercise our free will by proper intention and, through having done the good deeds, are elevated so that it becomes progressively easier and more natural to continue to do good and to resist evil. Now that's at least one Jewish rabbi's position on how to be right before God. And basically what he's saying is keep working at it until you get better and it becomes easier and easier. And then one could be promoted to a place of righteousness. You know that doesn't work. If you have tried that or you are trying it right now, you know it doesn't get easier. You don't become righteous. It goes the other direction, and Paul says, absolutely not. And then he gives this summary statement, not of the whole book because we're far from the end, but of what he's just been saying. Verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now what's that mean, he's the end of the law? First, let me tell you what it it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we do not need to obey the law It doesn't mean that we don't need to pay attention to the law if we come to Christ. It does not mean that the law is now irrelevant. Some churches teach that. Once you come to Christ, forget the law. I don't see that in the word of God. When it says he's the end of the law, it is saying he is that which the law pointed to. He's the end game. And everything that the law and all the attendant laws pointed to were Christ. Absolutely. It means that the law is not the taskmaster that it was. It means that I'm not a slave to the law, which he's already stated in Romans. Romans it means I don't need to think I need to fulfill the law because Jesus fulfilled it for me. So now, for the believer, the law is not a negative thing, but a way for me to show my love for the one that fulfilled the law in perfect righteousness. And then he gave me that righteousness. And so out of a love for him, out of gratitude to him, we see the law as an opportunity to show that love and gratitude. Not to earn anything, but to express our love and gratitude. Now, some of you might might still be grappling with uh, this idea of Understanding the Jewish problem here and their problem with grace. let me give you, give you uh, something let me tell you something that may smoke out whether you still have some of those tendencies to think you can earn or contribute to your salvation. I think sometimes we get to the point where we think, well, I, I get it. I, I understand it. Many of you will remember the name Jeffrey Dahmer. He was a serial killer. The things he did were so sickening that I wouldn't recount them here. But if you know who who he is, you know what I'm talking about. Jeffrey Dahmer was actually murdered in prison. Few were sad, most were happy, and most felt like, well, now he's getting what he deserves in hell. This week I read an account that claims that sometime before he was murdered, he experienced a conversion to Christ. The account told his first person of how Jeffrey Dahmer had changed after his conversion to Christ and the kind of fruit that that conversion showed that caused this person to believe it was genuine. Now, here's the dilemma whether or not you believe he was truly converted, what if he was? How do you feel about having a brother in heaven named Jeffrey Dahmer who is enjoying Christ along with perhaps your mother and father or grandparent? Or others that you love? How does that make you feel? Well, if that's a struggle or gives you kind of a sinking feeling in your stomach, then there's at least a remnant of feeling like some deserve heaven more than others. Until we know that we don't deserve heaven any more than Jeffrey Dahmer does, we haven't yet understood grace. And we we are having the same struggle that the Jews of Paul's day were struggling with. If that's the case, ask God to work in your heart and help you to see just how amazing His grace really is. That will change your worship. It will change your obedience. It will change your love for Christ. And know this we are not chosen because of who we are, we are chosen because of who God is. Let's pray together. Lord, I suspect in each of us there is a a Pharisee trying to get out trying to drag us back into the, the slavery to our works, to the law. Will you free us from that? Will you give us more and more a sense of how amazing your grace is that we could never, ever deserve? And Lord, will you cause that to make a difference in, in my life, in our life today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.